As we look at Hebrews chapter 3, we began last week, and because of the snow, most of us weren't here last week. We were, um, we were at home uh, staying warm, but I hope you got a chance sometime this week to, to watch that video of uh, Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through 6, because a lot of what was said there is going to play into what we see in the rest of this chapter. Many, uh, many people picture the Christian life as a, I don't know, a person that's lying on a beach, you know, without a care in the world. Somebody's feeding grapes to you as you lay back relaxing. In fact, some people evangelize that way and present the gospel that way. You know, come to Jesus and all your problems are over. All your problems are solved. Everything is going to be just a bed of roses and life is just going to be pleasant. No hardships, no trials. And of course, we know that's not true. Uh, now, as followers of Christ, those who've been born again, we do rest in our salvation, in our deliverance from sin. Uh, we rest in the hope that we have, uh, that this world is not all that there is, uh, and, and nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So there is rest, there is peace, there is assurance, but walking in that rest, walking in that assurance, that faith... Faithfully following Christ as our flesh and the world just continually try to pull us away, that's a battle. That's a fight. Uh, so, so living the Christian life is probably better pictured rather than a guy sitting on a beach getting fed grapes as a soldier readying themselves for the enemy's attack. A believer who's putting on the armor of God, ready to defend against the the darts of the evil one. Last week in, in Hebrews chapter 3, we were told at the beginning of that chapter, the first six verses, really the first verse, how to engage in this fight. It was a simple, succinct command. He said, consider Jesus. And we talked about how, how that means, not just consider the way we think, well, you know, I'm considering what I'm going to have for lunch, but fix our thoughts on Christ, fix our hearts on Christ, turn our eyes to Christ in the midst of all that is going on in our life. Well, well the Hebrew Christians who this letter is written to were enduring persecution, enduring trials and hardships for their faith in Jesus. And they were being tempted to go back to Judaism, go back to the safety of Judaism and, and spare themselves from all this persecution. Make sure you understand this. When, when they, we talk about turning from Christ in, in Hebrews, they weren't being tempted to go and become atheists. They would have said, no, we're not turning from God. We're still serving God. But to alleviate the suffering of their persecution for Christ's sake, they were tempted to stop living as if Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant. To go back to the religion. Go back to the form of their ritual and all of those things. Go back to what they'd always known. And life would be so much better if we could just do that, they thought. No more persecution. No more hardship. Listen, to fight this temptation... The writer of Hebrews exhorts them in verse 1 of chapter 3, consider Jesus, think on Jesus, turn your eyes to who he is, revel in who he is. And for two chapters, the writer has shown us, he's displayed Jesus before our eyes. He's shown us Jesus is better than all of that. He's better than all else. He showed us he's, he's 
the radiance of God's glory, as we read in chapter 1, even today, as we read that text during uh, the time of worship in song. He's the radiance of God's glory, the founder of our salvation, he told us in chapter 2. He's bringing many sons to glory. He said Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way to suffer and die, to propitiate our sins, to turn away God's wrath for our sin. And last week in chapter 3, as we began those first six verses, he showed us Jesus is superior to Moses as well. Jesus is the builder of God's house, God's people, the son over God's people. And the last verse we read last week was verse 6, which says this. He said in 5, it said, Moses is faithful as a servant in God's house. 6 says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And we talked about that last week. That, that is kind of an unsettling warning, isn't it? Here he brings, the writer of Hebrews brings the full force of this warning to these Hebrew Christians who are contemplating going back to the old covenant. He says, hold on, we're his house if we hold fast to our confidence, our faith in Jesus, our hope in Jesus. You can't go back to the old religion, the old ways, the old covenant and claim to be part of the people of God. That's what he's telling these Hebrew Christians who are reading this letter for the first time. God's house is those who trust and follow Jesus all the way to the end. He intends them to take this warning very seriously. And as readers of Hebrews today, we have to take this warning very seriously. We take it seriously today as we endure trials and hardships in our lives as well. The warning of verse 6 here really kicks off the next section. That's why I read it to you. So let's read verses 7 through 19 and then we'll go back and examine them. He says in 6, if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And verse 7 says, therefore, we're his house if we hold fast to our confidence. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the, on the day of testing in the wilderness. Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? Verse 19 is very important. Mark it in your brain. We're going to talk about it several times today. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
Let's pray. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your word. There's a whole lot here, God, and there's a whole lot here that um, if there's not clarity today, that could be confusing. God, I pray that you would uh, just give us clarity and that you would speak, that you would make sure everything gets said that you want said and nothing that you don't. Father, we pray that you would give us, um, that you would illuminate this text in our hearts today and that you would come and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this text, verses 17, 7 through 19, there is a real danger of a hardening heart among those who profess to be God's people. And more often than not, the point we're seeing here is that it's through testing, through trial, through hardship and suffering that the true nature of our hearts is brought into the light. The writer of Hebrews warns this first by showing us the pattern of the hardening hearts that characterize the people who followed Moses in the wilderness. And verses 7 through 11 here in Hebrews 3 is actually a quote from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, actually. So a thousand years before the writing of Hebrews, the psalmist warns his audience not to harden their hearts against God's word. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, he's quoting, about to quote Psalm 95. This is Psalm 95, 7 through 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's Psalm 95. 7 through 11. And the writer, the psalmist, back in Psalm 95, used the example of the Israelites in the wilderness who rebelled against God, who tested God over and over again. And every Jewish person reading this psalm, reading this quote in Hebrews, they would have known this psalm by heart. This section of Psalm 95 that's quoted here was used as a call to worship every Sabbath in the synagogues. They heard this warning week after week after week after week, year after year. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. They heard it every week. And it's how the uh, call to worship began on the Sabbath. And the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 here. To show them God has spoken now in his son, which we were told in chapter 1. If you hear his voice, meaning in the gospel, don't harden your heart. And we don't have to guess what the psalmist means by a hardening heart. Verses 8 and 9 describes it as rebellion, as testing God. Verse 10 tells us it comes from going astray in their hearts. The hardness of Israel's heart in the wilderness generation was characterized by not trusting God's faithfulness, not trusting God's word. They doubted God. They tested God. Whenever there was any kind of trial or hardship that they faced in the wilderness, it was grumbling, complaining, doubting. The Israelites exhibited this hardness of heart from Egypt when they were brought out of Egypt all the way to Mount Sinai. But the quintessential act of their hard heart, it came in Numbers 14. When God said there in Numbers 14, God told Moses 10 times, they have tested the Lord and refused to listen to my voice. 
In Numbers 13 and 14, though they had been grumbling all this time, complaining all this time, doubting all this time, God still faithfully brought them right up to the doorstep of the promised land. They were about to go into the land. And they refused to go in. They were scared of the people that lived there. You know the story, Numbers 13, 14? They sent 12 spies into the land to scope out the land. And they all came back and only two men, Joshua and Caleb, believed God and said, let's go into the land and take it. The rest of them didn't trust God. They didn't trust his promise. They were scared of the people that were living in Canaan. They refused to go into the land. They caused all of Israel to refuse to go into the land. And this defiant act of disobedience provoked God. And God turned them around and sent them into the wilderness for 40 years. But the problem wasn't just that they disobeyed. We're told here, verse 10, God was provoked. The problem was their hearts. They always go astray in their hearts they have not known my ways. Their hardness of heart came from unbelief. And their unbelief showed itself in the wilderness wanderings as they grumbled and they quarreled and they disobeyed and they were always doubting God. The hardening of our heart always begins with unbelief that's left unchecked. Verse 19, the last verse we read in this section, showed us that clearly. Why did the people, why were the people not allowed to enter the land? Unbelief. It says that in verse 19. Their disobedience, their rebellion, their testing God, their going astray in their hearts came from unbelief that was festering in their hearts. Every time a trial came, every time a hardship came, they didn't trust God's goodness to lead them and protect them and provide for them and satisfy them as he had promised to do so. And because of their unbelief, God swore they will never enter into my rest. Now the promise of the promised land, it would be fulfilled to a later generation. But for the generation who witnessed the miraculous exodus, the plagues, heard the word of God thunder from Mount Sinai to them. Those who were delivered miraculously at the Red Sea, all but two men of those over 20 years old died in the wilderness and never saw it. Hebrews quotes Psalm, this, this Psalm 95, to show us that, that this journey in the wilderness serves as an example for us. And so he turns now to his audience, the writer of Hebrews, and he gives the same warning. He tells them, protect yourself. Protect yourself from a hardening heart. After giving this example of Israel in the wilderness, he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then he goes back to the psalm saying, this is what he's talking about. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Hebrews now addresses the reader based on Israel's example in the wilderness. He says, you need to take care that an unbelieving heart is not festering in you. 
And the first way you do that is to keep watch over your heart. The word take care, or translated take care, is literally watch out. Keep on guard. Look after. Guard yourself against the seed of unbelief in your heart. And notice the reason that we take care, brothers. So an unbelieving heart won't be in you, leading you to fall away from the living God. Literally, it says leading you to apostatize from God, turn away from God. This is the same phrase that Joshua and Caleb used in Numbers, trying to convince Israel to go into the land. They kept saying, don't turn away from God, don't apostatize, the word they were using. Don't turn away, God has spoken, let's go into the land, don't turn from him in this way. He's using the same warning. But of course, Israel didn't want to go into the land. They refused. In fact, several times on the journey of Israel in the wilderness, or from Exodus to the doorstep of the promised land, Israel desired to go back to Egypt. We went through Exodus on Wednesday night for about 12 years or so to get through it. We saw this several times. We were better off in Egypt. Let's just go back to Egypt. They desired to go back to Egypt rather than follow the Lord and trust his word that he was going to provide, that he was going to take care of them. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, applies this warning to the persecuted Hebrew Christians. He's saying, don't turn away from Jesus. When he says, leading you to fall away from the living God, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the living God. God has led you out through the gospel. Don't be like Israel in the wilderness desiring to go back to Egypt. Don't go back to Judaism and formless religion. God doesn't reside there anymore. He doesn't reside in the temple anymore. Don't turn away from Jesus, the living God, to go back to formless religion. He's saying, take heed to what the Lord has said and what what God has promised. God has spoken in his son. Even in the face of your persecutions, even in the face of your hardships and your trials, he's saying, listen to his voice, not the voice of your heart, not the voice of your circumstances as those in the wilderness did. Oh, we're never going to make it through this. God has left us out here to die. They said that over and over and over again. A hardened heart is one that no longer trusts the promises of God. No longer remembers what God has done in his mighty works. And therefore gives more weight to other voices than God's. The comparison between Israel in the wilderness... And the Hebrew Christians struggling in under persecution right here, it, it's relevant for us today. Having been delivered from the Egypt of our sin, as it were, we're still wandering through the wilderness of this fallen creation. We're still experiencing the sufferings and the trials of this life and this fallen world and our own flesh. We still come to places in our lives, even today, where like Israel in the wilderness, we can't find any water. What do we do? Do we doubt God, grumble against God? Do we think it would be better off to go back to our old life in Egypt, our old religion, our old ways? How do we respond in those trials reveals the state of our hearts. That's the point. So he says, take care, brothers. Guard your hearts. 
Don't let the seeds of unbelief fester in your heart. Guard it. Keep watch over it. But he also says that this is not something that you are meant to do alone. The second command he gives is to, verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Why? Why do we exhort one another every day as long as it's called today? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I wonder how differently it might have turned out if Israel in the wilderness had just daily encouraged one another instead of always being negative, always grumbling, always doubting, maybe they could have helped lift one another's hearts to trust the God who had brought them miraculously out of Egypt. We are meant to journey through the wilderness of this fallen world together and to help one another follow Jesus. Like it or not, we need one another to keep our hearts from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When we're left alone to our own hearts and our own thoughts and our own isolation, our own little bubble, it's tempting. It is tempting to compromise living for Christ. It's tempting to doubt God's promises when we're suffering or when we're undergoing trial. In isolation, our deceitful hearts tell us that departing from God's will and his word is really the only way to make things better for you. None of us are above that temptation. None of us. And isolation makes that temptation all the more stronger. We have to have discipling relationships to journey through this wilderness. We need each other because our hearts, whether you like it or not, our hearts are deceitful. They deceive us. Our hearts are untrustworthy. The importance of exhorting one another in this, in this text, discipling one another, keeping, keeping one another from hardening, a hardening heart, it's illustrated in verse 14. So he says, 13 says, exhort one another as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for, because, this is why, we have to exhort one another because we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence, our faith, firm to the end. You see it? Together is how God has ordained for us to persevere in faith. Now, here is another one of those warnings in Hebrews that's really unsettling, isn't it? We talked a little bit about it when we, we, we went through this passage when we were talking about Connect and Worship Connect Serve, so some of you may remember that. But it, it's a little unsettling. I mean, does it mean, does, is he saying here in verse 14 that someone who is sure enough born again, the Spirit indwelled them, made a new creature in Christ Jesus, that that person can lose their salvation? If you've been here any amount of time, I hope you know the answer to that question. It is, okay, thank you. Once again, notice the tenses of the verb. We have a bad habit of reading what we think the verse says into what the verse says rather than just reading what the verse actually says. What does it say? You have come to share. 
past tense, perfect tense actually, it's already done. You have it right now. You are right now a sharer in Christ. And then he says, if in the future you hold to your confidence firm to the end. See what he's saying? The evidence that you are right now a sharer in Christ is seen as you hold your confidence firm to the end. It doesn't say, and you will be a sharer in Christ if you hold your confidence firm to the end. It says you already are a sharer in Christ if you hold your confidence firm to the end. That means the opposite of that is true. If you don't hold your confidence firm to the end, it doesn't mean you lost your share in Christ. It means you never had one. The grammar of this sentence will allow no other interpretation. Those who are born again are indeed eternally secure in their salvation. But the evidence of that salvation is not what you did 25 years ago. It's not the aisle you walked down, the prayer you prayed, the hand you raised. The evidence is that you are following Christ in faith all the way to the end. I said this before, but there are two dangers that are always associated with these warnings in Hebrews. The first, we just talked about, is the danger of thinking they teach that we must work to maintain our salvation. Well, if that's true, church, no one has ever been saved and no one will ever be saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. In order to be righteous before God, you, you don't have to be good. You have to be perfect. Absolutely 100% sinless. And you can't start today. It starts when you're born. From the day you're born to the day you die, you have to be absolutely 100% sinless. Only Jesus can do that for you. That's why he tells us to watch our hearts. Only Jesus, by his grace, can do that for you. So there's a danger in thinking, well, this is teaching me that, you know, I, I just need to be, I need to be afraid all the time because I just, one wrong step and I, that's not what he's saying at all. The other danger though, is thinking that, well, praise God, eternal security is biblical and it's true and it is. I'll die on that hill every day, every time. But because that's true, these warnings don't apply to me. Oh, they most certainly do apply to you. And they apply to me too. That's why he tells us to watch our hearts. In the last few verses of this, verses um, 17 through 16 through 19, we're told, we're shown, you can't presume that you're immune from this warning. You can't presume that this doesn't apply to you. Many people reading this text back then and even today might look at these warnings and they say, oh, that could never happen to me, man. I know my heart. I know what I believe. I know what I know is true. I experienced the glory of the Lord when he saved me. I was sincere when I prayed. I really, really meant it. To address this, the author really in, in this, this last text asks three Three sets of questions, really, to really bring the point home. The first question he asks in verse 16, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? You see what he's asking there? Who was it that turned and rebelled in the wilderness? 
Oh, it was all the people who gloriously came out of Egypt, praising God and saying they were his people. The same people who saw God's signs and wonders and miracles and plagues in Egypt, the same people who witnessed Pharaoh's defeat, the same people who walked between the walls of water at the Red Sea, the same people who were graciously led by God in the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the same people who received the blessing of manna from God every day in the wilderness. Those are the people that rebelled against the Lord. It all began so well. The whole nation came out of Egypt praising God, glorifying His name, after they were delivered at the Red Sea, the whole nation on the other side of the Red Sea sang songs of praise to God's glory. They enjoyed his deliverance. They enjoyed his provision in the manna and, and, all, and his leading them. They declared themselves to be God's people and agreed to be in covenant with God at Mount Sinai. But at the end of this journey... Only two people over the age of 20 actually entered the promised land. Hebrews makes the point here that everyone who died in the desert began with such glory. They began with joy and praising God and extolling his blessings. They began saying, oh, we are his people. These persecuted Hebrew Christians that Hebrews is writing to you may have began with joy and excitement at the gospel. The fulfillment of God's promise in a Messiah may have filled these Hebrews with hope and excitement. I mean, Israel waited a long time for the Messiah. So when this gospel was proclaimed to them, oh yeah, they jumped on board. Who doesn't want the blessing of God? Who doesn't want salvation and eternal life? Who doesn't want the forgiveness of their sins? But now these Hebrew Christians were experiencing hardships and trials. They were being persecuted and suffering because of their professed faith in, in Jesus. They weren't in the glorious stage of the Exodus anymore. They were suffering in the wilderness. And the author is calling them to examine their hearts. The evidence of salvation is not how you began. It's not what kind of prayer you prayed or how sincere you were or what kind of ritual you underwent. The evidence of your salvation isn't the joy and the excitement or the profession of faith that you made. The evidence is that you continue in faith following Jesus because the Spirit of God dwells in you and you are a new creature in Him. Amen. Jesus Himself even said this when He told the parable of the sower and the soils. Y'all know that parable? I'm not going to go read the whole thing. We don't have time for that, but basically just... He, he said the word of God is like a seed that is sown. And he described four types of soils. Uh, the, the hard path, the rocky ground, stony ground, the thorny ground, and the good soil. And those soils represented the hearts of the people and how they respond to the gospel, how they respond to the word. Well, when he describes the stony ground, the rocky ground, he says this in Luke chapter 8. And the ones on the rock, meaning the people, the rocky ground soil, are those who, when they hear the word, look at this, 
They receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. You see what he's saying? Make sure you don't misunderstand. They fall away not because they didn't hold on good enough. They fall away because there never was any root there. But it sure looked like it even to them. They received the word with joy. Every Israelite who died in the wilderness once came out of Egypt with great joy, hope, expectation, claiming to be God's people. Only the grace of God can keep you. So don't ever think it can't happen to you. The second question he asked, and I'm getting somewhere, stay with me. Verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Every time, every time a trial or a suffering entered in Israel wandering in the wilderness or Israel between Exodus and the doorway to the promised land before they turned around, they grumbled, they complained, they doubted, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Their unbelieving hearts were revealed. And the result of this was judgment. Their bodies fell in the wilderness. Just like the Exodus generation, many of the persecuted Hebrews that that this book is written to were now in their trials grumbling and doubting and complaining. Following Jesus has, has brought hardship and it's brought trial. Some were thinking it'd be better for us just to go back to Judaism. God has brought us out here to die. Israel in the wilderness said that over and over and over and over again. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt. The writer is asking the Hebrews, listen, if you don't watch your heart, how do you think it's going to end up for you? Now is a time of suffering and persecution for these Hebrews. It's a time like Israel in the wilderness when when everything looked hopeless and they couldn't find any water and, and, and trial after trial after trial after trial happened. He's asking them, what do you believe? Do you believe God is God? Jesus in the gospel is enough. Do you think he's powerful and able to see you through this in the gospel? Or are you going to grumble and complain and test the Lord just like your forefathers did in the wilderness? The third question he asks shows us that it was those who were disobedient that God swore would never enter his rest. You see it? Verse 18, and and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19 tells us, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Verse 19 shows us the reason that they didn't enter the rest. The reason that they died in the wilderness, the reason that they rebelled, the reason that they were continually grumbling and complaining the whole time, the reason that they were disobedient, and the reason that they weren't allowed to enter into the rest, it's because they did not believe. In these questions, verse 16 through 19, what you see, what he's presenting to the Hebrew Christians is a deceptive descent from excited hope and joy and expectation into 
repeated grumbling and unbelief in trial down to disobedience, which leads to judgment. He's showing them what happened to Israel in the wilderness. And in this, we see how the wilderness wanderings, the circumstances in the wilderness are are just like our own. The difficulties and trials that they endured in the journey through the wilderness tested them, tested what was truly in their hearts. The truth is, and if you've checked out, check back in for just one minute. The truth of the matter, they didn't believe even as they left Egypt with joy and singing. The testing and the trials didn't turn them away from their belief. It revealed the reality that they had none. The trial didn't turn them away from believing in God. It revealed that they didn't believe in the first place. So even as they sang songs to God and rejoiced in the fact that they were his people and agreed to keep covenant with him at Mount Sinai, they did not trust God. We are saved by faith alone. It is its trials that reveal what we truly have our faith in. That's why we must all guard our hearts. Listen, when everything is going great and and we're just enjoying the bliss and the blessing of God and, and life is just a bed full of roses and puppy dogs and unicorns and everything's just, it's just wonderful. Are we resting and trusting in Jesus or are we resting and trusting in these blessings that he's given us? Is he our hope or is our hope in what he can do for me? When we made our profession of faith, did we actually trust in Jesus or did we just agree with a doctrine to save ourselves from hell? Are we trusting in the person, Jesus Christ, or are we just trusting in facts about Jesus? These are real questions that we have to ask ourselves. This is us examining our heart, keeping guard over our heart. What is it we're trusting in? Because when the storm hits and the trials come and following Christ comes with a cost, it isn't that a bunch of people lose their faith under the trial. It's the lack of faith in Jesus that's brought to the surface through the trial. Are you with me? The last verse tells us this without ambiguity. They were not able to enter because of unbelief. The root cause of them not entering God's rest was not their works, was not even their disobedience. It was their unbelief. Their works and their disobedience and all that happened in the wilderness just showed what was in their hearts. Believer, keep watch over your heart. What are you trusting in? If you ever start thinking that God's grace, God's glorious gospel in Jesus Christ is sufficient to rescue you from hell, but it's not enough to satisfy you and provide for you as you walk through the wilderness of this life, you need to beware. Watch out. Those are seeds of unbelief. You need to kill it. 
Because you're in danger. If we were to continue, this passage actually continues into verse 4. If we were to continue into verse 4, it says, Therefore, they couldn't enter because of unbelief. Watch your heart. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, it still stands today. There is a promise today for you to enter into his rest. He says, let us, not let you. He includes himself. Let us. The writer's telling, let us all fear lest any of us, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And here's why. Verse 2, for good news, gospel, that's the word, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were too bad and they were too disobedient. No, because they were not united by faith with those who heard it. Listen. Watch your heart. Exhort one another daily. Trust in Jesus alone. Because it's in trial and in suffering that our hearts are revealed to us. They're untrustworthy. We can't trust them. Watch your heart. Now, all this is really sobering and it's frightening. And it's getting close to lunchtime. Sometimes we, I want to say one more thing, just because I, I, I was very, very fearful today that, that something I would say in this would get misunderstood and I wouldn't be clear. Sometimes we read passages like this, and I've given you a lot, and there's a lot in here, and, and there's just so much, we don't really understand, okay, what do you want me to do? I mean, watch my heart, be careful, my heart's not trustworthy, trust in Jesus, not in what Jesus can do for me. I mean, I understand that we are trusting in his salvation, but I understand what you mean. John 1 says we receive him. But, but what does that look like? I mean, what am I supposed to do? Remember how this chapter began. Chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus. Fix your mind on Jesus. Fix your hearts on who he is. Make him your hope. Make him your desire. And you move your heart toward that as you dwell upon him, as you fix your eyes upon him. You make him your joy no matter what the circumstances are. You fix your heart upon him so that his word overrules what the voice says in your heart when you undergo hardship and trials. You hold fast to his word even when everything else in the world is telling you, boy, it would be better for you not to follow him, not to obey him in this. Trust in Jesus, not in the gifts that you want him to give you. Believe that Jesus is better than what you're tempted to turn toward, to go back to as you walk through the wilderness. He has accomplished all for you. Jesus was sent into the wilderness for a time of testing in Matthew 4. For 40 days, he endured temptation and trial and hardship as Satan threw every temptation he could think of at him. And do you know what Jesus did? He held firmly to the word of God. He declared the promises of God were better when he was tempted to satisfy worldly desires another way by Satan. He trusted the provision of his father above all. And because he did that, he's able to provide for you, to satisfy you in the midst of your trials. Don't turn from him. Examine your hearts. What are you trusting in? When you made your profession of faith, what did you actually trust in? Did you receive Jesus? John chapter 1, as many as received him, he gave the authority to become sons of God. 
Did you receive Jesus? Or were you just making a contract so you wouldn't have to go to hell one day? Receive Jesus today. Trust in him. And walk in him. And believers, let's take care lest there be any unbelieving heart in us causing us to turn away from the living God. Our hearts are untrustworthy. We don't take for granted anything. Only the grace of God can save. So we keep Jesus ever before our eyes. He is better. Trust in him today. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, so, so much in that. So much in that that can... I, I just pray that you would make it clear. And if I've muddied the waters in any way, God, I pray that you'd forgive me and that you would use the text itself just to clarify your will. Father, help us just to follow your word. Help us to keep Jesus ever before our eyes and fix our hearts upon him, knowing that he is good, that you, Jesus, are good, that you are better, that you are worthy. God, help us to keep watch over the seeds of unbelief that fester in all of our hearts and to kill them when they rise. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves. To know that you are better than all else. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that hasn't trusted in you, though maybe made a profession back when they were a tiny child, God, I pray that you would, ask, that you would just have us all examine our hearts. And that if anyone here doesn't know you, that they would put their trust in you. That they would entrust themselves to you. And that they would receive Jesus. Call out upon Jesus. God, I pray that you would do a work in us today. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. I'd love, if you, I'd love to pray with you if you want to come. Will you stand with me?